This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. When I'm working on a song, I try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's listening to that song. It's like uh, making a painting. You draw what you have, what you see. But in here, you don't see it, you hear it, and you feel it. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Nate Chenin. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, whose dulcet tones did we hear at the top of the show? We heard the mellow and beautiful voice of Peter One. He's an extraordinary singer-songwriter from the Ivory Coast who now lives and works in Nashville. And why did you want to speak with Peter One? Well, you know, here on Working, we're really focused on the creative process and craft and, and not as much on biography. But I would be lying if I didn't say that his life story is part of what hooked me. So in 1985, way back in 1985, when the Atari 2600 was the home entertainment system of choice, uh, Peter One and another singer-songwriter named Jess Sabi released an album called Our Garden Needs Its Flowers in the Ivory Coast. It's this really gorgeous blending of kind of West African music and 70s American folk country, kind of the Laurel Canyon sound, you know? Mm-hmm. It was highly influential in West Africa. It made them big stars in that region. Uh, Peter then moved to the United States and didn't release any music again, really, until this year with his latest album, Come Back to Me, which just came out. In the meantime, he's been raising a family. He's been working in the nursing uh, field to support them. And, you know, so I was really interested in that and interested in what it's like to return to a creative career in your 60s. Uh, And also the album's really beautiful and I got hooked on it. I saw Peter One at the Big Ears Festival in Knoxville this spring. And it was one of those things. He, He had multiple shows and you couldn't get near any one of them. You know, really? there was this real sense of like, you have to see this guy. Yeah, I haven't seen him live. What's his live show like? Is it? Is it? Really oh, good? I mean, it's it's as transfixing as you would imagine. Got it. You know, yeah. he's, he really knows what he's doing. Um, so before we get into the conversation, um, I would guess that you saved some 
pretty great questions for Peter One for our Slate Plus members. What can they expect? Yes, definitely. No BB plus questions here. Only the greatest questions for our Slate Plus members. Uh, They'll get to hear a bit of Peter talking about moving to Nashville and what that city means to him and the status of his collaborative relationship with Jess Sabi, whether or not we can ever expect some music from the two of them again. Oh, that sounds excellent. If you're a Slate Plus member, make sure to stick around for that bonus conversation at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member... Guess what? You can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get exclusive members only segments, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. Also, if you become a Slate Plus member, you'll be supporting our work and the work of everyone at Slate. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's hear Isaac's conversation with the musician, singer-songwriter, Peter One. Peter One, thank you for joining us on Working to Talk About Your Process. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you for having me. So first, we should, of course, probably acknowledge that there's been a 30-year gap between your previous album, Our Garden Needs Its Flowers, and your new one, Come Back to Me. During that time, you moved to the United States, you were working in nursing, you, you had a family. Were you also playing music privately and writing songs that whole time? Yes, I was writing. I've never, never stopped writing songs. Uh, as a matter of fact, soon as I got uh, to the U.S., I started um educating myself and the first thing i did is to start um building my home studio Mm. so this helped me stay in touch with music all the time writing songs listening to new music and finding out to you know work on old songs new songs and revising you know everything you know (laughs) i've always been in touch with music all the time so What's the oldest song in terms of when it was written on the new album? Oh, uh, the oldest one is Bonane. Oh, okay. Yeah, Bonane is um a song that I wrote in 1980. Oh, wow. Yeah, in just a few minutes. Oh, really? My friend and, and I, just at the end, I, we were doing just, um, you know, radio shows, uh, television show on the national television station in the Ivory Coast. And uh, one day we got invited. At that time, I was just uh, starting teaching in a, in a small town somewhere in the Ivory Coast. And I came for the Christmas break, mm-hmm. came to Abidjan. As soon as I got there, my friend told me, okay, listen. George Benson, that's the name of the host of the show. George Benson wants us to come to his show on uh, New Year's Eve. It was the same night. So I said, okay, um, so what are we going to sing? Because we didn't have any song for the occasion. And uh, I said, we're going to sing something, something else, some of our old songs. So it would be better to, you know, innovate a little bit, you know, bring up something new. So I say, okay, come on, I got something. How about this? 
<laughs> and we start playing and singing, and it came out good. It's, it's, you say, well, yeah, we can we can take that. That was our very first show live, because before that we were playing, but it was pre-recorded and uh, aired later. So that was Bonane and New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty. Incredible. And is that usually how your songwriting process works? That just like a thunderbolt of inspiration hits you and out comes a song almost completely formed? Yeah, sometimes uh, songs come in like uh, in a few seconds and uh, if you don't grab it, it's gone. That's one of the reasons why I always have my cell phone with me and uh, I have my studio also. I can wake up in the middle of the night with something coming to my my head and uh, just jot it down recorded before i forget it yeah so when inspiration strikes and you don't you know you're out of your house you don't have your guitar with you or whatever are you singing into a voice memo on your phone or something like that just to make sure you hold on to it correct that's what i do i always have my, my cell phone with me in the car when i'm driving or when i'm walking in the street somewhere and something can inspire me right there and uh, i have a couple words and sometimes with the melody, sometimes just with the, the words, the lyrics, without the melody. And I found the melody later. But uh, most of the time, it comes as a form of melody. And I try to add some words in it to, to make it a little bit vivid, to make it, um, you know, real. Mm. And so later on, I can work on it. Yeah. Well, I thought maybe we could talk about a specific song on the album. Just the, the first track, uh, uh, Sherry Vico, the chorus of that song is, of course, where the title of the album comes from, Come Back to Me. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. I was just really, I remember um, the first time I heard it because your, your your press people you know, sent that, me the album and I was walking down the street and I literally stopped in my tracks to just listen to the album. My dog that I was walking at the time was very, very confused uh, by what was going on because uh, it's so beautiful. Can you just talk a little bit about the songwriting process for that track? Where did it begin for you? Was it with the guitar line or the chorus or were you in your car? You know, where did it start? The song itself is, um, you know, from your old melody. And uh, I just had to add some guitars. The first version was a different way of playing the guitar. And then over time, I came up with uh, this bit of uh, the rhythm of the guitar, uh, came up with it, and I found that very nice. So when I met the producer, Kevin Daly, uh, a producer who was interested in working with me on my music, the very first song was uh, Don't Go Home, and then the next one was Sherry Vico. I started playing that, and he was really interested right there. So, so I, okay, let's keep it this way. That those, so <laughs> this way of playing the guitar is probably interesting. Those, so I kept it this way. <laughs> so that guitar line, how did that evolve? Were you basically just like singing the melody and doodling around on the guitar until you found the right figure? Or yeah, I, the first version I had some African beat that we called High Life. Yeah, and then uh, I look at it and say. Let me change a little bit and make it more modern, more, you know, pop, 
more international. <laughs> you mean the drum beat was high life or just the rhythmic structure of the guitar line? You know, the, the, the rhythmic um, goes with the drums. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. It's the yeah. way you play the rhythmic that the drummer will um, play. But all I kept in there from the first version to this new version is the, the shaker. Yeah, the mm -hmm. way the shaker plays. I kept that, yes, to to keep the, you know, the African flavor in there. Right. Well, the guitar line has a kind of high life feel to it too, right? Yes. Yes. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's also those uh, beguiling overdubbed uh, vocal harmonies. Were those worked out in the studio? Had you kind of figured those out in advance or? Yeah. I, I wrote them way before we went to the studio. The song by itself, without the, those vocals, it was a little bit too simple to me, you know, a little bit flat. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I needed to bring in something to raise up a little bit and make it more, you know, make it sharper. You sing in three different languages, is that correct, on, on the album? Yeah. How do you decide which language you're going to sing in when, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Sherry Vico, for example, you're singing in two different languages just on that song. There are some songs that are in French and, you know, how do you decide which language fits the mood of the song? It comes with the melody. Oh. The melody makes me uh, think that uh, this would be better in English, would be better in French, would be better in African language. Second is the topic. When I, it comes to the, the lyrics, you know, I decide, if it's um, a topic that I want to address for the international audience, I will sing it in English. If it's um, aimed to the Africa's, you know, audience, I will sing it mostly in French. You know? mm. If uh, it's something that is not really addressed to the international market, I will sing in my language, whichever is more comfortable. So in Sherry Vico, I just translated what I'm saying in Guru. Come back to me. Eat down, le, eat down, le, come back to me. That's what it means. Right. Oh, Vico, hey, eat down, le, uh, oh, Vico. Vico is um, uh, short for Victorine. And Sherry, Sherry is baby, you know. Right. So, baby Victorine, come back to me. It's, I just translated it from the African. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Are you sitting on a big pile of, of songs that you haven't recorded at this point? You must have a, a big back catalog. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of songs right now. I have a lot. Are you still kind of fiddling with, are, you know, are you trying to figure out what to do with those? Or, you know, what's your process like with, with that older material that you haven't recorded yet? Uh, I'm still working. And I'm trying to find uh, ways to make it better. You know, as an artist, you're never, never satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who are they looking to? do better. Sometimes by doing that, you come to ruin what you, <laughs> the good job you did before, but I don't care. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, is that, is doing better with the song usually a matter of, I don't know how it's arranged or trying different melodies or. When I'm working on a song, I try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's listening to that song. Somebody who's um, in front of me, like an audience, one person, a group of people, 
uh, listening to that song, how they would react, how they would perceive the song. So from there, I kind of feel the atmosphere, the ambience, you know, and I try to translate this ambience into sounds as far as um, the reverbs, the melody, how the guitar would play, which, which sound of the guitar I would use, all these things. So it's, it's like uh, making a, a painting. You know, you imagine a landscape and uh, you draw what you have, what you see. But in here, you don't see it. You hear it and you feel it. <laughs> right. We'll be right back with more of Isaac's conversation with Peter One. the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey listeners, Isaac Butler here. I just wanted to say that we really want to hear from you. Every other Thursday, we have this extra show called Working Overtime, where we answer listener questions, give advice, kind of explore some of the topics that come up in our interviews, things like that. So please tell us your creative challenges or your ideas for guests or your triumphs, your failures, whatever it is, and let us help you. Drop us a line at workingatslate.com. You can also send us a voice memo to that address or give us a ring and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. And while I've got your attention, if you happen to be enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now back to my conversation with Peter One. Are there friends or family members that you kind of play songs for to get their opinion of them while you're working on them? Oh, I used to do that, but uh, no more. Why'd you stop? First of all, some will ask you to, you know, can you copy this? Can you make a copy of this for me? And uh, when you do that, by the time you finish, your, your music is out there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
that's one reason. The second reason is when there's a song is not totally built yet with the instrument, with uh, everything, yeah. just by the guitar and the vocal, the full extent of what you want to express is not always possible. So I would do that for professionals, you know, for people right. who are yeah, professional, but for the, you know, lay people, lay person, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so when you have went into the studio with this album, were you bringing, did you have demos of the songs to give a sort of more fleshed out idea of what you wanted it to sound like? Yes. The musician, they got the, the demo. And when we got to the studio from the demo, we built new ideas. But not far from we we kept the structures everything, but uh, we work on the sounds how to get the sound how to you know the beats the speed all that you know they brought up ideas also so it's a combination of ideas from everybody yeah totally so just to go back to the demos for a second is that just you and an acoustic guitar or have you put some drums on it done some overdubbing you know how how evolved are the demos that you're giving the band uh the demo we gave to the band was just two guitars mine and um kevin's guitar and we did uh, i did my vocals and i think in one or two songs we added the background vocals got it no drums, nothing. Right, got it. And you said that you know it was really a collaboration with the the studio musicians. Were there any songs on the record that changed really dramatically from how you had originally conceived them based on that collaboration? Yes, uh, on my own. Mm. What What was the original idea? The original idea was on uh, a very pop song with a uh, song lead guitar like beef guitars in some spaces you know mm -hmm. contrasting with the vocal and the the foundation would be heavy and the vocal would be on the top of it but not heavy you know that's not what we get it'll take time to go through my pain It'll take time for me to love again. It'll take time to go. When we got to that song, the, the producer, the management, they say, okay, they want it this way, they want it this way. We haven't discussed that in advance, so it was, we didn't have time to discuss that anymore. <laughs> so, so I just went by what they said, but... Um, it's not actually what I wanted, but um, we didn't have time to discuss anymore. And now when we're touring, we try to play the way I wanted and they like it. <laughs> they like, like it. They start seeing now what I, what I was saying. <laughs> oh, wow. Amazing. So, well, if you put out a live album, you can have the alternate version. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So your album was co-produced and engineered by uh, Matt Ross Spang. Um, and you were, of course, the other producer. You were you co-produced it with him. What do you look for or what maybe makes an ideal, you know, producer-artist relationship? Um, from my experience, from what I've been doing so far, a good producer is, first of all, somebody who's good at engineering sounds, you know, how to use the mics, how to use the 
console or that to get the sound that you need. And it should have a good background music also. Not necessarily uh, you know, a very good player, but background in the sense that uh, he listened to a lot of music, listened to different music. He has a, you know, experience of um, the way the different music are recorded because um, each music has its best way to be recorded to you know, really express the deep meaning of that music. So a, deep, a good producer should have that and a good producer should be open, open to suggestion as is should be able to make suggestions also. Mm-hmm. How do you work with or, you know, communicate your vision to the musicians? Are you referencing other acts? Are you singing the things you want them to play? Like how, how do you get the, the folks in the studio to do what you want when the original thing they're playing isn't quite what you had in mind? The first thing is uh, I let them play the way they feel it mm-hmm. on the demo, from the demo. I let them express their feeling. If it goes toward what I want, I take it. <laughs> right. But if it's going too far from <laughs> to my vision, then I tell them, okay, how about doing it this way? I make suggestions and we walk from there. And that's how, how we did it. For the right. drums, for the um, the bass, for the guitar, we didn't lead guitar. We didn't have uh, much to say because uh, the lead guitar was already immersed in that <laughs> in that music already. I don't know how he did it, but he was he was in there already. <laughs> he just he just got it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> amazing. Um, do you think about genre? when you're you know recording these songs because the album pulls together a, a bunch of different genres there's blues there's high life there's afrobeat there's american folk there's kind of laurel canyony stuff going on in there you know do you um do you think about that or is it just sort of more organically what comes out i think about that but not too much because music is music <laughs> right and it's also my background i've grew up and uh, listened to different music and I choose to do this kind of music that is uh, relaxing, that's music to, to be listened to. It's not for dance, like most of African music <laughs> that I made for dance. Mm-hmm. I choose to do that. So I try to add things that are, you know, very interesting to me. And in Nashville, my dream has always been to bring something new. Even though I claim I want to do country music, folk music, I should bring something, yeah, something new, something that reflects, you know, another culture. So when it comes time to play these songs live, you know, how do you think through that? Like, what makes for a good live show for you? How do you conceptualize your concerts? I haven't quite got where, where I want to go with the live shows yet because oh, really? I'm so far, we, we've been um, opening, you know, so we don't have our own console. We don't have our own, you know, sound system, you know, <laughs> yeah. our own engineers to, to really shape the sound that we need. Like, we rely on what we get <laughs> so far. But to me, a good live show is uh, well prepared. 
and it has to do 50% with the band and 50% with the, the people on the console. Right. You know. And another challenge of being an opening act is, of course, the audience isn't there to see you. <laughs> they're there to see you or most of the time. They're there like you open for Jason Isbell and the Walkman. And, you know, most of the audience who's there in the room is probably there to see Jason Isbell. And so uh, and part of the job of the opener is to kind of win over the crowd. You know, do, do, how do you handle that? How do you think about that? Because that seems like a weird job to me. I've never been an opening act, but it seems like a weird job. <laughs> it's not a weird job <laughs> for a beginner like me, beginner, you know, talking about the American audience. Yeah. It's an opportunity, mm. you know, opportunity to show what I can do, what I'm able to do, and uh, expecting the people to like what I'm doing and, uh, you know, finally get my own stage. I don't, I don't find it frustrating at all. I think it's a blessing. It's a chance that they give him the chance to, you know, to get on the stage. Do you test out new songs uh, live just to see what the reaction is like? Yeah, we play, <laughs> I play a lot of new songs. Uh, like last night, I played one of the songs and I was surprised the audience was singing <laughs> with me. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, then you know you got to put that one on the next album. Yeah, next album. <laughs> of course. <laughs> they loved it and they started singing with me even though they don't know that song. But uh, the you know the chorus was easy, and they started singing with me. I said, "Oh, you guys are great, audience. You guys are great." <laughs> you should just take them with you wherever you go. You uh, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So, um, are you on tour right now? Are you at, at home? What are you What are you up to these days? All uh, right, now I'm uh, opening for uh, the Walkman. I'm in Washington D.C., my hometown. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I got to ask, what club are you playing in D.C.? I'm uh, 9.30 Club. Oh, that's the best place. I saw so many shows there in high school. I love the 9.30 Club. Yeah, it's a great place. Yeah, amazing. Do you still have an African fan base, you know, from your previous album? Are you going to play concerts in, over there? Or, you know, what is your relationship like to that audience from 30 years ago? Yeah, I have um, yeah, a large fan base. Um, I just need to reconnect with them. Mm -hmm. Because ever since I came to the U.S., I haven't been really present. I don't do social media that much. <laughs> I just started now with this because I didn't like, I don't like to show my face if, if I don't have anything to show, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's now that I'm reconnecting and uh, they're really reacting well. I went uh, recently, I was in London. I met uh, the community there. And they were really, really happy to, you know, to find me again. In France, it was the same thing. They were really happy, even though I didn't play in France. I think they are, they are ready to see the shows again of uh, Peter One and his band. And in Africa, in Africa and the Ivory Coast, oh, I've been receiving a lot of, a lot of good, 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 good feedback from the people, even the young generation. I was there last May. I did a two television show and one of the show was really, really great because the young people were born after I left. They love the music from the past and they're seeing now the guy who was singing that music. They were really, really euphoric. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, there's a good job to, to be done there. Well, 
Peter, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your process right here on Working. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, Isaac and I will talk about the role of intuition in creative work and what it's like to discover forgotten pieces of art. All that and more after the break. Isaac, that was a beautiful conversation with a guy who seems like a genuinely beautiful person. You know, his music conveys so much about his personality. There's the sensitivity, the humanity, maybe some of his humility and resourcefulness. But, of course, it doesn't tell the whole story. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is whether the Peter One you interviewed was the Peter One you were expecting. Yes and no. I mean, his press reps had told me in advance that, you know, he's a quiet guy. He's a quiet, sensitive guy. And that's the kind of tone he's going to bring to the interview. And so I was expecting that. Uh, And I think that sensitivity is a real extension of his personality that shines through in both his music and in our interview. The part that was I don't know that if it's a surprise, but this was the thing that I found really interesting is the layer of real confidence that lies behind that. You know, Mm -hmm. he's not quiet because he's an introverted guy who doesn't know what he wants and he's just hoping to get by. Do you know what I mean? He, uh, he, and some artists are like that and that's fine. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that, you know, he has a vision of what he wants to do musically and in his career. And he's pursued it in a really, really serious way. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we often associate that with a kind of exuberant, extroverted personality, you know, whereas I interviewed someone like uh, Yola. I interviewed Yola uh, for this show. And she's someone who's like a very charming, bubbly extrovert. But she also brings a lot of collaborators into her songwriting process. Her songwriting process is way more one of discovery unless I know what I want to do in advance and stuff like that. And so it's just interesting that personality types and creative processes don't necessarily align 100%. You know, there's a moment in your conversation that so perfectly illustrates this when you ask him what he looks for in a producer. And his first answer is basically like, I need somebody who knows how to work the equipment so so that they can capture what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, He's not necessarily looking for input. He's kind of like, just, you know, capture it as beautifully as you can because this is what it is. Yeah, totally. And, you know, there's lots of different producer-artist relationships, right? There's like, you think about like Brian Eno and Talking Heads where he's really going in and, and uprooting their sound and is eventually credited as a co-writer of the songs on Remain in Light, you know, and then there are producers where it's much more about just trying to capture the artist's vision as cleanly as and clearly as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, hearing him talk about his process, too, I was really struck by the premium that he puts on intuition. You know, there's a, another answer to one of your questions where he says that he tries not to think too much. Right. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of study and experience um, and expertise that feeds into his music. But what do you think about his natural inclination toward not overthinking? Is this just a personality type that we encounter, you know, across the arts? <laughs> well, I'm an overthinker, so I'm always fascinated by people who can shut the left hemisphere of the brain off and just fucking do their work, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> right. I really I really do admire them because it's not what I'm like. I'm deliberative. I take a long time to come to decisions. I'm always, like, doubting them and going back to them, you know? Um, I think that one of the things that having a great deal of knowledge 
and experience in your field in both a craft and a practical level, you know, listening to, in this case, music, listening to a lot of music, practicing your instrument, spending a lot of time. In his case, he built a home studio so that he could do that kind of work. That enables you to be intuitive, right? Mm -hmm. It's that stuff operating in the background that allows intuition to happen. And so for overthinkers like me, the trick is to actually recognize when that's what's going on and to follow that lead. And for more intuitive people, I think it's sometimes recognizing that you really do need all that stuff, all that work as the foundation for what you're doing. Uh, I will also just say that, you know, this is a personality type that we nurture in the arts, which I think is a good Mm -hmm. thing, and that other fields could recognize the validity of the intuitive personality type and uh, use its particular advantages more. Not everything needs a quantitative study by a team of consultants before you make a choice. Right. Like when, when you're talking about, you know, his building the home studio, you know, there's something so remarkable about his story in that, you know, he hasn't really been reliant on the whims of the recording industry or the music business. You know, he's, he seems kind of like grateful for that happening, but not at all like putting all of his eggs in that basket. You know, he's going to write songs. He's going to be a musician, no matter whether anyone is listening or, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are listening. Yeah. And as a result, he has a huge back catalog of songs, right? I mean, you know, I was, I was interested that he's been writing songs the whole time. And so he has a huge back catalog of songs live. He's playing all sorts of stuff that's not on his albums. You know, he's, he, the business stuff had to be in the right place for him to make the choice to switch careers, right? That's the practical side, right? But the entire time he's been making his art, whether or not anyone was buying the album or whether there was even an album to buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to ask about his choice of profession outside of music. I think it's kind of remarkable that when he was seeking to you know, support himself, he didn't decide to teach guitar or go into you know, writing jingles or, or you know, teaching music education. And, you know, there was nothing related to music in his occupation. You know, yeah. he went into nursing and it's clear that while he takes considerable pride in his work, he's not a prideful person person, it seems, you know, he seems really pragmatic and patient, you know, and and as we said, like not, he won't subject himself to the whims of, you know, these outside forces. So you've encountered so many different kinds of creative types, um, both on this show and just out in the world. Um, And I wondered if he reminded you of any other examples uh, in this respect, Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think there's two schools of thought when it comes to what your day job is that supports your art making. One is that you do something related, so they're always kind of informing each other. Like you talked about, you know, teaching – you know, you're a painter, so you teach art at a middle school and then you paint for yourself on the weekends, you know? Right. Uh, And then the other is actually that you get a job that's totally divorced from it, you know, so that you're saving those parts of yourself for Mm -hmm. the art making process and you're not exhausting them in, you know, your, your day job. I think both of those are really valid. That said of the people I've interviewed, you know, Peter one's journey is fairly unique in that a lot of the people I've interviewed have either been younger folks like um, the Beths who are in their twenties and been making music together since high school or, or, you know, mm-hmm. they steadily built a career like Sarah Goldberg, who played Sally on Barry, or they're kind of old lions of their art form, like Tony Kushner or Nathan Lane or whatever, right? right but right. every artist at some point has to figure out their strategy for approaching the pragmatic. How do I make a living? If I have a kid or kids, how do I feed them and also get to see them since <laughs> the arts are extremely yeah. time intensive and take you away from your, your home? 
even if it's to your office in the basement to write. What city do I want to live in? Do I want to live in a city? Can I afford where I'm actually living or want to live? You know, the pragmatics are a huge part of the creative life, and they involve just as much, if not sometimes more, creativity than the actual creating of the art. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, pulling back a, a bit, when we think about this resurgence that he's having as an artist, you know, one parallel that came to my mind is Ibrahim Ferrer, the you know the incredible yeah. Cuban singer who, uh, you know, he'd slipped into obscurity in Havana before turning into a, a global superstar, courtesy of the Buena Vista Social Club, both the the album and maybe especially the film. <laughs> No, that's not a perfect parallel, but you, you can see why that's where my yeah. mind went. Um, your conversation really it touches on this, but I wonder if you could say more about the machinery of cultural discovery <laughs> and, you know, and let's be honest, commodification that that propelled Peter One, mm. you know, this wonderful artist, back into the spotlight. Well, I'm definitely interested in hearing your thoughts on this as well, because as a as a critic, you know, you're constantly reviewing these kinds of reissues and rediscoveries and, and thinking about them uh, as a music critic. But I will say for myself, I have a very romantic feelings about the rediscovery industry. I love the machinery of, you know, cultural rediscovery. I'm a total sucker for it. I love the New York Review of Books editions and Valancourt and Tor Essentials, which are bringing back <laughs> right. the neglected classics. I love Numero Group. Are you a Numero Group fan? You know, oh, where, yes. you know they, they go and they find these local soul labels all over the United States that never had national distribution and put together a sampler of their best work. The first theater company I worked for after graduating college is The Mint, which rediscovers neglected plays. There's something about that that is so pleasurable. I agree there's a commodification aspect to it, you know, but I'm a sucker for it. I love the idea that nestled in the cracks of our, you know, cultural firmament are these gems that are just waiting for someone to notice them, you know, for the metal mm -hmm. detector guy sweeping the beach to, to dig in and see <laughs> that there's a, there's a, you know, a, a lost Krugerrand down there or something. I mean, I, to me, if I had to speak, put my cultural critic hat on, I think that part of it is about our own desire as the individual consumer and audience member to not be forgotten, particularly mm -hmm. to not be forgotten after our death. You know, even if no one pays attention to you now when you're alive, somewhere in the future, someone's going to find a photo album with a picture of you in it or a home video you recorded or a novel you published that didn't sell well. And you get to live on again in this kind of curious afterlife. You know, I, I think that's part of what the appeal is for me. Hopefully it's an unpublished novel and not a, a series of tweets. Yes, yes, um, yes. Someone digs in and they find, they're like, what, why did this guy post all these images of Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at things? What, what is the meaning of this? Um, you know, bringing that idea back to Peter One, you know, one thing that intrigues me about this story of rediscovery is that, you know, often when you have, especially in the sort of folk uh, rediscovery, you're like, oh, here's, you know, here's this singer-songwriter from the Ivory Coast, you know, and, and there's a certain kind of, you know, Western presumption that you have about what right. that is going to sound like or what that's going to be. This sort of uh, romantic idea of a kind of purity of folk expression or what have you. Yeah. And he, Peter One is an absolute synthesis, you know, he yeah. he's really 
cosmopolitan in his listening and in his songwriting and, you know, uh, his choice of language as he's performing. And so he really complicates the idea of the of the sort of like, hey, we found this forgotten creator. And he's like, you know, yeah, and I'm I'm already way ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. I love that. That is all the time we have for today's show. Thank you, Isaac, for this wonderful conversation. And uh, before we go, just one more reminder that if you join Slate Plus, you'll get to hear all of our episodes ad-free. You'll also get to hear exclusive segments on the show and a lot of other Slate podcasts. And you'll get to hear entire bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And of course, you'll get full access to all the articles on Slate.com you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Peter One for being our guest this week. And thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews, who keeps us from sliding into both obscurity and mediocrity. We'll be back next week with a very special encore presentation of my conversation with Hannah Boss and Paul Thoreen, the writers and co-creators with Bridget Everett of the hit HBO show, Somebody Somewhere. Until then, get back to work. for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.